This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. A lot of time. I'm Stephen Caradini. And I'm Chris Kreitcho, and I'm no longer quite as horribly burnt out, but, well, we'll talk a little bit about that before doing the wrap-up here today of Season 6. We are sorry, dear listeners, that once again we ended up taking an unplanned multi-month hiatus between the almost last episodes. We had about three or four more planned, and we're going to chat through those today, and the actual what will be last episode of Season 6. So, Which is this one. This this is it. This is the end. This is it. Not not this of the, the show, end. just of the season. Of season six. Yeah. So, so, so a little background. This was quite a year for me. You heard a little bit about that at the end of last season and at various points in this season, but over the course of this year, I moved across the country, bought a new house, moved into said new house, and helped my dad walk through brain cancer. He lived. It's fine. He did. Everything is great. He's healthy and happy and it's good. But you know, brain cancer. It's brain cancer. And also had an incredibly stressful professional year. The the situation with my work is better now, but from roughly April through October, it was the most challenging six months of my career in a lot of different ways. These things all compounded on each other. You can go listen to an episode of my other podcast, which we will link up where I talked through it in length. Or you can read his blog where he talked about like all of it. And I was like, wow, that's like super, super honesty right there. Kudos. We'll link those things up. The net of it is that burnout is bad, kids. You should avoid getting burnt out. We'll talk about how you do that probably in season seven if yes. we get to do what I want to do for season seven because pulling back the curtain, we like have to actually discuss uh, and and like hash out various ideas. <laughs> and sometimes mine don't win. Sometimes Chris's don't win. But Crazy talk. I know. I know. Compromise. It's tough. But to to get past that, and to get on to the conclusion of season six. So yep. season six was about rejecting technology. And I reject the technology of burnout. It's, that's not a technology. <laughs> that's actually the opposite of a technology. <laughs> it was about how we as various collectives, individuals, companies, societies, whatever, how groups of people say no to things, what they should say no to, if they should say no to things, and what it means to say no to things, not just that you have rejected technology and toto, right. but that certain types of rejections of technology mean certain types of things. And so we've explored that in a lot of different ways, including one of Chris and I's favorite episodes where we talk about the technology of the smart city and ended up talking a lot about data and what it means and how it works. So if for some reason this is the first episode you're hearing of the season, go back and listen to the one about smart cities because that's that's a high point of this season. So to clear out what ideas we had left, they're actually sort of related to the concept of geography, a city being a sort of geography. Two ideas that we had. Uh, one, we're talking about how embracing technology sometimes doesn't expand geography, which is sort of one of the promises of uh, technology, that it will decrease distance and allow people to be more connected. Sometimes it collapses it. Right. Rejecting certain types of technology allows distance and geography to maintain their normative place. 
we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, on the other end, if you totally reject technology in a uh, sense of a, a rural situation where you're going back to the land, or if you never had technology on the land, that doesn't mean that technology won't come to you. It just changes your relationship to technology. So sort of as a corrective on our, not a corrective perhaps, but sort of a helpful counterpoint, a, a counterpoint to our ideas of rejecting technology is that sometimes rejecting technology doesn't mean that you end up rejecting technology. It just means you've rejected certain ways of using technology. And then we'll finally briefly touch on a theorist named Shannon Valor. She wrote a book called Technology and the Virtues. And uh, Chris and I uh, both read it and we have some thoughts. Chris read a bunch of it. I read a bunch of it and then the burnout hit me and punched me in the face repeatedly. Right. I read read all of it. He wasn't getting punched in the face by burnout. No, I got punched in the face by parts of the book, though. <laughs> and then the last bit is, uh, as as we mentioned earlier in the season, sometimes art can help us think about what rejecting technology looks like. We yeah. mentioned that with the Terminator, and we're going to touch on that briefly some more. So to start with, let's talk about geography. So we, we had an interesting hook here because we were thinking about music, and we were thinking about this notion that things are always democratized in the internet era and that things always get helped, that local communities will be stronger because you'll have the internet, etc. But the reality is, if you look at what's happened in the music industry over the last few decades, it doesn't actually sound like that. Now, on the one hand, there's there's a sense in which it's true. You can find all sorts of indie music put out by people from their garages and basements and studios in their homes and everything else and just uploaded to iTunes and yay off to the races. Yep. But that is not the only thing that has happened. In fact, when the internet hit the music industry, LA and Nashville, which have been two of the big hubs for music for a long time, ended up becoming actually more important, not less to the way the dynamics of the music industry played out. And here I'll defer to Steven since it's literally been one of his jobs for the last, what are you at, 16 years now? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, close to 16 (laughs) years now. May will be 16 on the dot. But uh, it's an interesting conundrum. So one of the things that the internet enabled was anybody to do it. So anybody can put music out, you can put it on Bandcamp, and there's not even a a sort of vetting process of which there is a a minor bar on on Apple Music and, and iTunes and things like that. So anybody can distribute. But because anybody can distribute, that means that there's a massive glut of music. And that's great. Like if you're interested in music as a listener, if you want to build a career in it, it's really hard to break through. You now have way more competition. Way more competition. People can listen to anything anywhere all the time. And furthermore, you have competition that's not technically real competition to you in that there are many musicians who aren't trying to make a living out of it, who probably would love to, but just aren't doing the sorts of marketing and entrepreneurial work that you have to do to have a a career in the music industry. But that music, because of technology, sounds at a high quality, sometimes comparable to or even better than some musicians who are making a entrepreneurial career out of being a musician, whether that's through uh, their self-funding, self-developed careers, or whether they're with a record label and some other sort of traditional uh, pattern of publishing houses and all these sorts of things. So there's all this work now that is competing with you, whether you like it or not. 
and whether the people who made it like it or not. And so the, <laughs> yeah. the tension is that to be a successful musician, you have to not just have good music, but you have to be in the right places. You have to connect with people who are going to help develop your career. You have to connect right. with other artists who will put you on tours, connect with PR people who will help get your music out to various places that will promote it. You have to connect with managers and connect with uh, publishing houses. And some of this can be done online, but a lot more of it can be done in person, particularly if you have relationships where someone is sitting in Nashville saying like, man, we need a guitarist for this tour and we need someone who knows like half the songs already. And you may think, oh man, I already know a person who does that. That's a thing that they do. They, you should hire them for this thing. And so the ability of the, the natural networks that exist in Los Angeles and, and Nashville and to a lesser extent, Austin and New York City um, and some other hubs, Minneapolis comes to mind. Some other places where there's a concentration of people who are all doing the same sorts of work and therefore are able to support each other professionally and have access to other types of professional support. This is, again, not impossible via the internet. You can hire a PR person and a manager and even, you know, get publishing and these sorts of things. You can do that all via the internet, but it's just a lot harder. And the thing that's surprising, perhaps, to a lot of technologists there is that if you believe the rhetoric of the internetists, which is a word I just made up and I will probably never use again because I kind I, of hated it. Yeah, I think I think you mean the futurists or the technologists. Right, but I, I have in mind here very specifically the web-focused and internet-focused technologists. Now, granting that this strain of thinking is sort of endemic to futurism and goes back to the telegram and all sorts of other earlier inventions, much of which what we use now is actually literally built on top of the same wires for. Indeed. But in every one of these cases, the idea has been that technology will always make things more global, more interconnected. And more efficient. Right, and more efficient. And while there's a way in which those things are sometimes true, there are ways that it's not true. And so sometimes saying no to a technology could leave you in a spot where you actually have more and better opportunities because you have more local communities. The thing that often gets unstated in these globalizing internet or telegram or whatever in between discussions is that globalizing trends often, not always, we've talked about this in past seasons, about music, in fact, but often come at the expense of local communities. And when we've talked about Facebook, this is one of the reasons that Facebook's inability and Facebook's leadership's inability to understand how making everything globally connected could ever be bad. Well, if you're undercutting and undermining local communities, well, local communities have their downsides too, but there are downsides to cutting off or undermining or degrading local communities. And if we're not conscious of those, and if we're not conscientious about the choices we make about the technologies we employ, both individually and communally and even societally, we're going to risk getting, sure, maybe some of the upsides, but also all of the downsides of these globalizing technologies. And so right. the 
things we could say there are many, and we've said a fair number right. of them over the course of the season. But the takeaway from the season for us with this little view into the music industry as a part of it is that there are no unalloyed goods. And as we said from the outset, none of these technologies are neutral. Right. There's a phrase I've seen bandied about a number of times, and I unfortunately cannot recall the source of it, but to say that technologies are not neutral does not mean that they are wholly good or wholly bad. In fact, the technology itself may be in some sense morally neutral. Most aren't. We've established that as well. Indeed. But they're not without effect. So to say that they're not moral, in even if we could find one that was totally amoral, is still not to say that it's neutral. Because it has these effects on communities, on societies, on individuals that go beyond merely the initial service implications of it, and that go beyond the kinds of things that we can say, oh, well, it's just a matter of how you use it, because it uses you too. Right. The things we use shape us, form us, shape our communities, form us. And the most obvious example of this that we've talked about in the past is the automobile. And yes, the automobile is in some sense perhaps morally neutral, but guess what? It has fundamentally redefined the shape of cities in America over the last century. And that itself has many knock-on effects for many other yeah. things. And I think that's a critical point is that to the people that want to talk about whether things are moral, morally positive, morally negative, neutral, positive, all that sort of thing, the answer to is a technology like anything is technically a technology isn't anything except a collection of parts. Right. But when when people are talking about morally neutral, they're not talking about like, is it is it moral to put this part on top of that other part? They're talking about, is it moral to use this in a, a context? Right. Right. Because it is technically moral to put two pieces together for out of context, right? There's nothing that, you know, without knowing specific widgets, names, and things like that, like you can stick widget on widget and it's fine. But no one really means that. What they mean is I would like to absolve myself of the responsibility of using this thing in the way I use it. So right. one defense is to say that this is a morally good thing that I'm doing or to say uh, this is a thing that is morally neutral uh, and I am using it in a fine way but other people don't use it in a good way. Um but a lot of people don't want to say, oh, it turns out that I'm culpable in some bad things <laughs> and right. I am responsible for those in a small way by using the system or tool or technology, whatever it is. And so, you know, no one wants to say like, yeah, it's a morally bad technology, but I use it anyway because it's convenient. <laughs> right. And to to pick up some of the ideas we had in season five – your individual use might, in fact, be neutral, but in the context of a structure, you might be implicated in something that's really, really not neutral. Exactly. And that's the context that I, I'm talking about, is that no matter what you're doing, you're, you're talking about it insofar as it exists in the world, and you want to circumscribe around yourself as closely as possible. That's the liberal project of, <laughs> of neoliberalism, is, is I am circumscribed. But as we've discussed throughout in every season of this podcast, you're not circumscribed. You are connected in a variety of ways. And if we thought about things as a community, whatever size of community, we would have a very different relationship to technologies because no matter what technology you were doing, you would have to think about it from 
all of these people as opposed to one of these people. So that leads directly into Shannon Valor's thoughts on technology and the virtues, where her whole book is based on the idea that we as a human race have a shared interest in continuing to exist. <laughs> and therefore, it is. That's true. Therefore, let's not blow ourselves up or murder ourselves with robots or et cetera. Yeah, I'm, I'm and, not exaggerating. No, That's he's part not. Of the it's just a funny phrasing. Let's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, the, the context of the book is that given that we as a human race need some ways to communicate and think about together technologies, right. her argument is that instead of using various other types of uh, ethical systems, uh, we should be using virtue ethics. And the reason that she posits virtue ethics as a good way for technology uh, ethicists to go about it is because – as the first half of the book demonstrates, uh, in three separate uh, virtue ethics traditions, they come to similar points about how people should operate in the world and in community. And that becomes an easy uh, jumping off point for her to say, okay, let's apply this to technology and look at how we can, without being deontological about it, and we will spare you the uh, long excursus on deontological versus virtue ethics, which we could have. <laughs> I could do a whole podcast about that. We only have 11 minutes left in this podcast. Skipping over the deontological and other forms of ethics and going straight to virtue ethics allows a way forward for people who have widely different uh, religious and, for lack of a better term, theo-economic <laughs> sort of, I don't know, you know, pe people who hold various economic policies as very strongly held almost to the point of religion. Right. So I'll, I'll note that we do commend the book to you. It's not without its flaws. I had the hilarious experience of getting through the prologue and thinking, so I fundamentally disagree with her about this particular divide between deontology and virtue ethics, and I'm pretty sure the book is going to play out like this. And as I kept reading, the book kept playing out like this. So it's not a book that I wholly agree with. The same is true for Stephen. We've talked about it at length. Sure. But it's a really good book, and it's a really helpful entry into this conversation. And if you're interested in thinking more about the kinds of things we talked about this season, the notion of ways of life and wisdom and mm -hmm. applied ethics, she's got a lot of really useful, good things to say. And the main point of serious substantive difference we have with her is – Hey, Dr. Valor, you're right about all these things, but why? And, you know, we're Christians, so we have a reason why we think that these different wise people throughout history in totally different cultures observed very similar things about what, what makes a virtuous human being. We have reasons to think why these things are that way, and perhaps in some future episode, as well as in episodes one and two of this season, you'll get some of that from us. But she does a great job of saying here's how these systems cohere. Here's how they overlap. They're not perfectly overlapping, but they overlap enough that whether you're from the Far East or the Near East or the West, to use those sort of historic terms for these regions of the world, there are a lot of things we can agree on. And all of them entail our not just doing certain kinds of things, but becoming certain kinds of people. Right. And that's a really important thing that should chasten us when we think about the technologies we're using. And 
I'm really, really happy that Google hired her to be its resident ethicist about AI. Yeah, her chapter about AI and robots is uh, magnificent, I must say. And so we're really happy that she's out there doing that work. We do commend the book to you. But but the biggest thing we want you to take away, probably from this whole season, and especially from her book if you read it, is that technologies are not just matters of the things we can do, but they shape and they impact the kinds of people we become. If I'm a person who habitually stares at my phone at every hour of the day, never disconnects, never spends time disengaged from social media or podcasts or whatever, and sits silently, I'm going to be a very different kind of person than someone who regularly takes time in solitude, in silence, in prayer or meditation, those things form us differently. And because of that, if we're going to live well in the age that confronts us, we need to be concerned not just with what these things are and what they do or don't enable us to do, but also with who they help us or hurt us in our attempt to be. Right. And so it is commendable on on that front in that it, it tackles the thorny problem of how do we live together when we don't all believe the same things for the same reasons, which is an important thing to tackle. Um, and it also almost wholly rejects the liberal project, which is sort of amazing. So, <laughs> Right. Speaking of people who have almost wholly rejected the liberal project. Or at least would like to. Or at least would like to with great abandon. Uh, one other topic that we didn't get to touch on was the, the rural nature of technology. So we have touched on in previous eras of the podcast, previous episodes about how uh, rural technology is sort of complicated, uh, particularly because there have been some uh, agreements that have not been lived up to that have made the speed of internet in various rural areas poor to non-existent. Right. So on the one hand, there are plenty of people that don't mind that the internet is slow out there because the pace of life is slow out there and the internet brings with it a speeding up of the pace of life. That is part of what the internet does. And so there's a tension there where some people can look to uh, some types of rural communities, not all rural communities, but some types of rural communities, uh, some that are intentional rural communities, things like the Amish, uh, some that are just unintentionally communitized, so people who live in this area, so not intentionally built as a community. And they can look at those things and say, well, those people rejected technology. You should just go hang out with them instead of making a p- podcast season on rejecting technology. <laughs> and and the, the counterpoint to that is that even when you do reject technology, there are ways that technology cannot be fully rejected. Unfortunately, if you talk about uh, Jacques Ellul, or if you read Alan Jacobs in the year of our Lord, 1943, one of the conclusions that both of them come to is that there is a technological milieu, a technological era that we live in, and that it is irresistible, not in the positive way, but you just can't resist it. It is the ground on which we live. To some extent, that is true. To another extent, we have a whole podcast season about resisting and rejecting technology. And so there's, yeah. Um, so we, we have to acknowledge that there is a level at which it is hard to acknowledge that, it's hard to not acknowledge that the internet is literally making this podcast possible and that right. it's being streamed over the internet right now. That's a thing. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, but at another level, there are elements of resistance that can be had. So mm-hmm. looking at, uh, various topics like tractors in rural areas. Uh, there have been some tragicomic sort of 
issues with tractors over the past few years, particularly in that John Deere and other types of name brand tractors are, like most cars now, run with code. Which is not necessarily a bad thing, except... Except that many, if not all, of the tractor developers and uh, makers, I mean, I can't really call them manufacturers anymore because they do a lot more than manufacture them, (laughs) but developers, let's call them, have made their code proprietary, which means that if your tractor breaks, you can't do anything to fix it because you can't get at the code. And so when you have a car and it breaks, to the extent that most people know how to fix cars, it's not necessarily the parts that you need to tinker with the code. However, with a tractor, that's not necessarily the case. Like people who are using tractors are the sorts of people that are a far away from a lot of people by default two are very fine grain interested in the operations of this tractor because you need them to be precise and so if there's something going wrong you need to be able to know how to use that tractor at a much deeper level than someone who's like oh yeah i can change my own oil yeah (laughs) right right we're talking like even more detail than someone who's like i can take apart my carburetor etc yeah 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 and the the net of this has been because of certain kinds of DRM and the simple legal status of this code, that farmers who want to go in and apply a patch to the code because they decompile it or do whatever else, they get a an illicit copy of it and make a patch to it and apply it to their firmware, are then subject and liable to lawsuit, which is, well, frankly, kind of absurd. I wanted to fix my own tractor, right? and I got sued for doing so because of the legal status of the code that runs on my tractor, which I bought. But did you buy it? That's the, the sticky the sticky wicket. Well, you bought the tractor, but you didn't buy the code that runs on the tractor. You bought a license to run that code on the tractor, which you bought. It's extremely annoying. We could do a whole season. Oh, goodness. A whole season on open source licenses and all the things with it. Versus DR. RM versus, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a mess. The net of that, though, is that there is a place where the technological corporation is coming for you, whether you like it or not. Because if you're someone who's been using non-code running tractors for the last 30 years, and all the ones that were available to you have eventually worn down because things wear down, hello, entropy, and you need to get a new one, you may be in a spot where you cannot get a tractor that doesn't have these kinds of limitations on it. And all of a sudden, your ability to escape this, frankly, abysmal, and I would go so far as to say wicked, practice by manufacturers of tractors is dramatically curtailed. Never mind that you chose to live in the country to be a farmer to get away from this crap. Which is not why all farmers do that. No, no. But But if you are a person... In our theoretical construction here. If you are that... If you're that old man shouts at cloud stereotype, which is the negative version of the stereotype here, but if if in a healthy sense, you've been taking our advice to heart and you decided, I want to go live close to the land because I read a whole bunch of Wendell Berry and I'm going to use my tractor and not live in this technical milieu as much as I can, well, the mm-hmm. technical milieu came for you and it chased you and it's trying to beat you into submission, right. which is one of the reasons why we can't divorce these discussions from their implications at that scale. We have to be able to look and say, well, look, John Deere, I can see all the reasons why you want to do that, but that's garbage. You can't do that. Never mind that you live in a city and those people live in the country. No, 
You're not allowed to. That's wrong and wicked. Stop it. Yeah. And there's a whole other boatload of of issues that come along like this with right. people who have children in rural areas who have access to the internet and then want to move to the city. That's a, a sociological phenomenon that we have to contend with. All manner of uh, construction practices and uh, the speed of government able to get to you much quicker than it used to be and all these different types of issues that, that come up when you have uh, a set of people out somewhere else who are in legal, political, and occasionally uh, sociological ways uh, responsible to or in charge of various aspects of your life, and they can get to you a lot easier because of the internet. So we do acknowledge in some ways, to the credit of Jockalul and to uh, Jacob's book, which uh, is good until it gets very frustrating in the last (laughs) 10 pages, we do acknowledge that there's some inevitabilities. Right. We can't can't avoid that. Right. However, it is not a fatalist set of block choices. Like there's no there's no concretized totality that lays out in front of us. We right. have the ability to make choices and this is shown in that people are starting to push back uh in a lot of different ways against Facebook. Whereas if you'd talked to me three years ago, as you go look at the podcast episode (laughs) three years ago, we, we were hoping that this would happen, but we had no, no mo, there was no momentum for it at all when we were talking about how it might be bad for you. And now there's lots of momentum. So there's, there's nothing fatalist about this analysis that sometimes technology comes for you, but there is an inevitable realization. There, there is, we're not sticking our heads in the sand and saying, yes, you can also do this. Right. There, there are ways in which it is possible to reject and there are ways in which it is not. Yeah. And that should chasten those of us who are generally technologists in a lot of ways, because it should remind us that the things we do, the things I do for a living, working remotely every day, are things which have consequences for people very far from me in very different modes of life who may desire a very different mode of life that what I do may compromise if I choose poorly. And so each of us as individuals, the kinds of companies we choose to work for, the kinds of companies we choose to build, the kinds of technologies we choose to embrace, these things have implications that go beyond us as individuals, as we were noting earlier. And our hope, we have no guarantee of this, but our hope is that over time, we and others will be able to do more and better, that we live in in hope, not despair on these things, even though it might be, to borrow Tolkien's words, a catastrophe, that sudden turn toward the good that no one saw coming because, well, stuff looks bad sometimes in many of these spaces. There, there are good things going, but in a lot of cases, it can be tempting to despair. And we shouldn't because, well, in our case, we're Christians. We're people of hope. That's mm-hmm. fundamental and definitional to who and what we are. And as part of that, I borrowed language there from Tolkien. And part of what helps us both imagine other ways of coming at the world and also helps us think better about the kinds of decisions that we're making is art. And we touched on this off and on this whole season, but whether it's Tolkien, or whether it's Star Trek, which is Stephen's go-to here example for this, art can help us interrogate the things around us and ask, okay, what happens if we do embrace this? And especially Star Trek, the original series, it's 
shtick was let's imagine a world where and Captain Kirk must save the day by shutting down the computer at the center of the planet. But we think that art is one of the most important and useful tools in our toolbox, though I I want to be careful to say that I think art is useful for these things, but we should never reduce art merely to its utility. Some art is focused more on teaching and some less on teaching, and that's to the good. Things that are, if our our frame of art reduces merely to the didactic, it will be sad. At the same time, there's some really phenomenal didactic art there. So it's a both and rather than an either or. I would say that art helps us think. Yes. I would not say that it's a tool. Sometimes it is. But whether it's didactic or non-didactic, art helps us think through the ways of doing. Because art is essentially a a riff on what is. Right. It is a thing that has not happened, but that could or should or should not or right. maybe could if we're not too careful and those sorts of things. So – it's particularly relevant to to jump back to this Jacob's book that I keep mentioning. Uh, Chris and I had a discussion about it this morning, which is why it's on top of both of our minds. <laughs> the The main thing that I draw a, a sort of offense at is actually a literary illusion. And what's what's great about the literary illusion is it actually makes my case stronger <laughs> against Chris. It's amazing. But because it's this particular literary illusion, it's much stronger as a, a emotional and moral argument than it is if he had just said, this is the way it is. And so there's, there's a, a way in which art, whether it's television, whether it's Black Mirror, whether it's The Lord of the Rings, whether it's uh, schlocky sci-fi, whether it's <laughs> Neil Stevenson, whether it's any of these different authors and creators who have made these these pieces of art they want us in a lot of ways even marvel movies which you're supposed to have fun marvel movies have ethical implications they want you to right. think about certain things go rewatch captain america the winter soldier it's still the best marvel movie i almost threw a shot at dc but i'm not gonna do it <laughs> I think you effectively did just throw a shot at DC. <laughs> I just didn't have to like make the joke. I, I meta joked right there. So so we we wanted to talk about that. And actually, as we go forward into next season, I I personally want to incorporate art a lot more into the yeah. ways that we talk about technology and the ways that we talk about the ethics, uh, particularly right. since I've been reading a whole lot more than I used to. So that's the the gist of what we would have done for two hours. Four episodes in one. <laughs> Just jammed it into 40 minutes, and there you are. So thank you so much for listening to yes. this season. Thank you for bearing with our uh, difficult time schedules. One of the things that this has done is helped me at least, and I, but I think also Chris, solidify a set of uh, parameters that we can use to continue going forward with winning slowly so that we don't uh, burn ourselves out <laughs> or end up underwhelming ourselves. But And we'll talk more about that in future seasons. So all that to say, thank you for putting up with this. We're hopeful and optimistic that we won't have as many uh, blips, but this is winning slowly. So get ready for that. <laughs>
I'll second that. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for bearing with us. Thank you to those of you who have supported us along the way. We really yep. appreciate it. And we will be back. We're hoping to start in January. I think I think we'll at least have one interseason episode in January. Yes. And then somewhere in February or March, we'll start uh, season seven. We, Like I said, we haven't fully planned it out yet. So it would be... And the last time we tried, the burnout was just about to literally punch me in the well not literally yeah. metaphorically yeah. literally wow. punch me in the punch me in the elbows i don't i don't even know man what i haven't eaten lunch yet it's killing yeah, me there you go there you go so all that to say expect expect at least one episode from us before we start season seven yes. but we are already thinking and working on what that will be so uh we're very excited for that and with that Thank you to uh, the person who and people who made the song at the beginning of the episode for letting us use it. Full disclosure, we don't know who those people are yet. <laughs> but don't use their song without permission because we used it with permission. <laughs> we only ever use things with permission. We and only ever use in the show notes for it. Don't you exactly, worry. Exactly. Exactly. As always, everybody, thanks for listening. It's been too many months. This is Winning Slowly. <laughs> this is Winning Slowly, taking, taking the, the long, long view, view on how <laughs> to make a podcast by going really, really slowly. What if, what if I did it? Like, oh man, that'd you, be really mixing things yeah, up. Yeah, that would be great. You should do that just to mix things up. <laughs> and yes. Captain Kirk must save the day by shutting yep. down the computer at the central of the center of the com- the uh, planet. The planet. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to rephrase that one.